Welcome. Come and hear, all ye that fear God, and I will declare what he hath done for my soul. That's how the author of Psalm 66 invites us to come and to study his psalm and discover what God has done for him. My name is Keith Simons. I'm a Bible teacher from England and I present these talks on how to understand the King James Bible by using the Psalms. Today, as I say, we're looking at Psalm 66. So let's start with a look at its ancient title. To the chief musician, a psalm, sorry, a song or psalm. The chief musician, the leader of the worship at God's house, the temple in Jerusalem. A song or psalm, saying that this is a musical work, is to be performed in the worship of God. You notice there's no name in that title. It doesn't say that it was written by David or Asaph or Solomon or anyone else. We often guess that some at least of these psalms, which have no name associated with them, were written by David, but really we don't know. It's just a guess. The Bible doesn't tell us. But what a bold declaration our author has at the beginning of verse 1. Make a joyful noise unto God, all ye lands. All ye lands. So he's speaking to all the different countries in earth, or rather people in all the different countries. And he's, he's looking beyond Israel now. He's looking at every nation and he's saying that people in every nation should worship the true and living God, the God who made them. But they shouldn't do so grudgingly or upset or angry against God. No, they should do so gladly and with great joy because he says to them, make a joyful noise unto God. This God who's been so good and kind to you, who's provided you with your food and your life and your home and everything that you need, you should be joyful. You should be thankful as you praise him. You should, verse 2, sing forth the honour of his name. Make his praise glorious. Sing forth the honour of his name. The word name describes in the Bible the character of God, uh, God's nature, what he's like, the God who forgives our sins, the God who provides for us, the God who is our judge. And so therefore you should give honour to him, you should respect him, and you should recognise the honour that he has, uh, the fact that he is good and perfect in all that he does. And you should make his praise glorious. I'm sure I've heard this, this phrase, make his praise glorious, quoted to mean, well, you need beautiful musical instruments to praise God and you should have people with good voices, good singing voices to sing his praise. Well, if people have good singing voices, of course they should use them in the praise of God. And of course, if we have music in the praise of God, 
there's nothing wrong in people who play skillfully and well playing. Uh, but that's not that's not what this phrase means, not in the Hebrew at least. The word glorious is the same word that we normally translate glory. And in the Bible, it's not the praise of God that should receive glory. It's God himself who has glory. The word glory means uh, God's splendid and wonderful nature, his majesty, his power, his authority. These are the great things, his greatness, that we're describing by the word glory. So when it says make his praise glorious, it means something like praise God because he has such great glory. He is so glorious. He is so majestic, so honourable, so powerful, so wonderful a God. Verse 3. Say unto God, how terrible art thou in thy works. Okay, let's pause for a moment. The word terrible, our studies, our studies of the language of the King James Bible as much as their studies of the book of Psalms. And uh, we need to understand the correct meaning of the word terrible because its meaning has changed in the 400 years since the King James translators produced their translation. Today, if someone uses the word terrible, they mean something's extremely bad. God is not bad. God is a good God who is good and perfect in all that he does. So obviously the word terrible has a different meaning. The word terrible, as far as the King James translators are concerned, it's describing how God should be feared. What God has done, his wonderful works, mean that we should fear him. And the word fear also has changed. Today we use the word, word fear simply to mean to be afraid. But no, in King James times, the word fear meant that we should respect someone. And so it's saying that God should be respected, that God's works, wonderful things that he has done, show that we should respect God. We should give him the proper place in our lives. We shouldn't oppose him or, or we shouldn't be upset at his laws and what he teaches us. No, we must respect him. We must respect everything that God does because everything that God does is good and right and perfect. And that is why through the greatness of thy power, shall thine enemies submit themselves unto thee. That's the second half of verse 3. So it's showing God in his works, in the things that he does, shows the greatness of his power. God has all power. God can defeat his evil enemies with just a word. And so because God's power is so great, his enemies need to submit themselves to him. They need to accept God is the true and living God. They need to turn from being enemies. They need to come to God and to ask his repentance. And that is one way in which God's enemies can submit themselves unto him. They can turn to God. They can ask God to forgive them. 
And because God has provided for them the perfect sacrifice, the death of Christ on the cross, God's enemies can become his friends. But what if they don't do that? Through the greatness of thy power shall thine enemies submit themselves unto thee. Well, they still have to submit to God. They still have to accept God's authority when God makes his judgment against them, when God punishes them or orders their punishment for their evil deeds, for their rebellion and for their wickedness against God. God's great power will be against them. Because the time is coming when God's rule over all things will be perfected. Yes, God is already the ruler over heaven and earth which he made. He is already the one with ultimate authority over everyone and everything. But the time will come when God's Messiah will rule on earth. The time will come when God will establish that perfect kingdom. And then God will put right everything that is wrong in this world. He will destroy the power of evil people to to be cruel and evil oppressors over people. And the earth will operate correctly. Verse 4. All the earth shall worship thee and shall sing unto thee. They shall sing to thy name, Selah. Oh, now we, we're really thinking about the time when Messiah rules. And when, when everyone in this world gives proper respect to God and to honour to and gives honour to God, and joyfully too, because they're singing, they're singing to praise God, they're singing to praise his name, to praise his wonderful character, to praise the wonderful way in which God works and thinks and acts and does. And with that, the author of our psalm inserts the word selah. People have different ideas about that. Some people th see it as just a a pause in the music, a musical interlude. Other people see it as a word to praise God, like the word Amen or Hallelujah can be a word to praise God. So let's pause for a moment or so with the word Selah. Verse 5. Come and see the works of God. He is terrible in his doing toward the children of men. So the author of our psalm is inviting us to come and look at what God is doing, the works of God. And he repeats this word terrible. God is terrible in his doing. In other words, he causes people to respect him by what he does. They see the powerful things that he has done in this world. And so they realise that they must respect him. And there is one terrible thing which he has particularly in mind, the author of this psalm. He's thinking particularly about how God freed Israel's people from slavery in Egypt, how he brought them to the Red Sea and he led them when Egypt's army came and surrounded them and threatened to attack. He led Israel's people through the Red Sea, yet they walked through not in muddy ground, they didn't have to wade through the sea. No, because verse 6, he, that's God, turned the sea into dry land. They, they went through the flood on foot. Yes, Israel's people did the most 
amazing thing there because God had done the most amazing thing. God dried up the Red Sea. It's a sea of reeds in the Hebrew. But he dried up that area of sea so that Israel's people could walk through as if they were walking on dry ground. They walked through an area which should be flooded. And they walked through and they didn't even get their feet wet because God had acted so powerfully to rescue to rescue them from Egypt's army. As soon as they were the, they, as soon as he, as soon as Israel's people had passed through, then the sea flowed back in, and Egypt's army, which were chasing after them, were drowned beneath the water. Now, the author of this psalm has described the people who passed through the Red Sea, Israel's people, as they. But then he makes a difference to it. He says, there did we rejoice in him. He says, you know, I'm one of Israel's people. Yes, hundreds of years afterwards, a later generation. But I benefit from what God did for Israel's people way back then. And because I benefit and because Israel's people now benefit from the freedom God brought to them, Therefore, we rejoice at the Red Sea. There did we rejoice in him. That is a reason for our rejoicing. Or when God saves his people, when God rescues his people, that is such a wonderful reason for them to rejoice in him. If God saved you, if God's rescued you from your sin, from the wrong things that you were doing, if he's given you a right relationship with himself, that's a reason for you to rejoice in him. And you'll look back to the time when he did it and you will rejoice in that. In fact, you'll look back further than that. You'll remember where he did it and when he did it, how Christ died on the cross so that you could be forgiven and that you could be a, have a right relationship with God. And although the cross was a terrible thing, although it was, was a place of torture and pain, yet for you it's a place of rejoicing because there God set you free. There did we rejoice in him. Verse 7. He, God, ruleth by his power forever. His eyes behold the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. So the power that God showed at the Red Sea, the power that God showed over Egypt's army, the most powerful army in the world then, God still rules. God is still powerful. God is still looking after his people. And God will show that power. He will appoint his Messiah to rule. He's already appointed his Messiah to rule. But his Messiah, the King, the Christ, will one day rule the whole world. God's eyes behold the nations. He's watching the nations. He's watching them like a guard watches carefully. So let not the rebellious exalt themselves. The rebellious is those who oppose God's rule. Let them not exalt themselves. They shouldn't become proud. They shouldn't think that they're great people. They shouldn't try to increase their power. 
because God is ruling by his power forever. Because God's eyes behold the nations, God is watching them. So they should remember the judgment of God. They should remember that just as God set Israel's people free from from the powerful army of Egypt, so God can act now, and so God will certainly act against them unless they repent, unless they turn from their evil deeds, unless they turn from their pride. And with that, the author of our psalm pauses us for a moment with again the word Selah. Verse 8. If someone lives an easy life, a comfortable life, where there's not many difficulties or problems, it's easy to praise God, but sometimes that praise is given to God without real depth to it. Uh, they, they praise God because they know they ought to, but not with the real joy and excitement of a person who's been forgiven much or a person who God has saved from great trouble. The author of this psalm had known great trouble. He'd suffered great problems. And he looks back in this next section at those problems and he speaks about the wonderful things that God's done for him. So he continues, verse 8. Oh, bless our God, you people, and make the voice of his praise to be heard. He's still encouraging people to praise God and to give honour to God. Why? Verse 9. Which, in other words, praise the God which holdeth. God is the God who holds our soul in life and suffereth not our feet to be moved. He's given us a strong and firm place to stand, and he does not suffer, that means allow, our feet to be moved from the place where he's put us. He holds our soul in life. In other words, it's God who gives life to our soul, our inner person, to us deep inside, so that in trouble, in difficulty, we can stand firm, we can t continue to trust him, however great our troubles are. And yes, the author of this psalm had known great troubles. Verse 10, for thou, O God, hast proved us. Proved means tested. God, you've tested us. You've put us through or allowed us to go through hard and difficult trials. We've had real troubles in our lives. What are these troubles? Thou hast tried us as silver is tried. The word tried here means tested. You have tested us in the same way that silver is tested. How is silver tested? Well, you take the ore of silver out of the earth and you need to clean up that ore to get pure silver. And how do you clean that ore? You put it in the fire. You put it through heat. You put it through fire many, many times until eventually this pure silver has run out of it. How is God testing us? He's taking us with all the dirt and all the problems and all the wrong things in our lives and he's testing us. He's allowing us to go through troubles just as that silver has to go through fire. He's allowing us to go through troubles so that what he has at the end is something much purer 
that is something better, something more precious, something that pleases him. Take silver out of the ground and what does it look like? Well, the ore just looks like dirt. But take silver out of the fire and what you have, you have something precious and beautiful, gleaming and shining. God wanted to improve his people in that way. He wanted to take what was best out of their lives. And he knew that the only way to separate the dirt from what was good, the silver from the rest of the ore and the impurities, the only way to take our lives and to get them more and more like the life he wanted us to have and wants us to have with him is to allow us to go through difficulties. Verse 11, thou broughtest us into the net. You brought us into the net. It's like when someone's uh, trying to hunt for birds to eat. And so they, what they do is they, they throw out breadcrumbs, for example, and the birds come to eat the bread, and then they throw a net on top of them. The author of this psalm is saying, it's as if you allowed our enemies to catch us like those birds. And you allowed more than that, God, because thou laidest affliction upon our loins. The loins means the middle part of the body, the hips. Um, and when he says that thou laidest affliction, you laid trouble, you put trouble on our hips. It's like our enemies, having caught us in the net, then led us away with chains around our waist. In other words, we were captured. We were captured as prisoners. And then even more troubles come. Verse 12, thou hast caused men to ride over our heads. It's like as if we were trapped. It's like as if there was a herd of cattle racing along the, the pathway and the cattle trampled over us. We suffered so much. We suffered injury and trouble. We went through fire and through water. Maybe this is describing a slave who has to go across uh, the flames of maybe, maybe a brick kiln or something like that in order to get something for his master. We went through fire. Or, or maybe he has to pass through a flood. We went through water. Yes, in the past, God's, uh, God led Israel's people through the flood on foot. He turned the sea into dry land. He did that in the past, but for us, God, you've not done that. You've allowed us to suffer. You've allowed us to go through the fire and through the water. You've allowed our enemies to treat us cruelly, and we were hurt and we were injured, and we have suffered so much, but we've seen your goodness, God. Even though we have suffered so much, we have known your goodness. Thou broughtest us out into a wealthy place. That's the end of verse 12. You brought us out of all that trouble. We went through it. We suffered in it. But you are our God. And when we prayed to you, you answered our prayer. And you rescued us. And you brought us into a wealthy place. Wealthy place? What is that? Well, I look at the Hebrew and I find that that Hebrew word 
is the same as the Hebrew word in Psalm 23, when the psalmist says, My cup runneth over. A wealthy place, the cup that runneth over. O God, when you rescued us from our troubles, our troubles were so great, but you rescued us and you brought us to a place where we had more than enough, where where you had provided everything for us. You provided for us generously. And so in thankfulness, we're going to give gifts to you to show how abundantly you blessed us. We're going to be generous with our gifts to you. Oh, not generous, but thankful. We're going to give you plenty of gifts to express how thankful we are. Verse 13, I will go into thy house with burnt offerings. So I'm going to offer burnt offerings, sacrifices to God in God's house, in the temple. So I'm going to take my animals. The Bible describes this at the beginning of Leviticus to the priest at God's house, the temple in Jerusalem. And I'm going to offer those animals to God to be burnt wholly in the fire on God's altar. Why? Because I want to give my life wholly to you, God. And I can't give my life wholly to you because I can't die. Uh, No, I'll give an animal wholly to you. And then when I see you've accepted that animal in my place, I'll know that you've accepted my life. So I'm going to go to your house. I'm going to offer these offerings to you. I will pay thee my vows, verse 14, which my lips have uttered and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. So he declares that he made promises. That's what vows are, promises. He promised God that he would go to the temple and give these gifts to show how grateful he was. And he said this when he was in trouble. He made these promises to God when he was in trouble, when he was suffering so much, going through the fire and the water and everything else. That's when he said to God, God, I'd like to give my life to you. I'd like to go to the temple and offer an animal in my stead, in my place uh, to you. But I can't do it now because I can't get there. I'm a prisoner in a foreign country. But when you bring me back, when you bring me back to Israel, I'm going to go straight to the temple in Jerusalem and I'm going to offer you burnt burnt offerings. In fact, I'll give you more than that. You've brought me into a wealthy place. My cup runs over. I'm going to give more and more gifts to you. You've given me great things. So I will offer, verse 15, I will offer unto thee burnt sacrifices of fatlings, fat animals, with the incense of rams. So he's offering male sheep, that's rams, and incense, that's a substance with a a sweet smell that burns. I will offer bullocks, bulls, with goats. So he's offering all the different sorts of animals that could be offered. He's offering rams, sheep, bulls, that's bulls, cows, and goats, all these different sorts of sacrifices that God has said he will accept. Well, he's going to offer these, the author of this psalm, at the temple because he wants to show great thankfulness to God. 
With that, he pauses once more with the word seller and then concludes his psalm. Come and hear, all ye that fear God, and I will declare what he hath done for my soul. Everyone who respects God, listen to me. I'm going to tell you what God's done for my inner life, for me. He's done such good things for me. When, verse 17, I cried unto him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. Oh, he's saying firstly, he cried unto God, so he prayed desperately to God. But then he says, God was extolled with his tongue. He praised God. And we could say, well, he, he cried to God when he was in trouble, and he's praising God now that he's been set free. But maybe it means that he cried to God when he was in trouble and prayed desperately, and he praised God then too. He worshipped God because he saw that God was going to provide for him. He believed in God, even when his troubles were at the most severe. He didn't turn to evil ways when, when he had needs. He didn't turn to anger against God or rebellion against God. Because verse 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If I regard, if I, I look with pleasure upon iniquity, that's sin, in my heart. If I'm proud of the wrong things that I'm doing. If I, if I look at my selfish or greedy attitude and I, I'm pleased to hold on to those. Then what good is my prayer? No, I have to turn from sin. I have to turn from the wrong things that I'm doing to God when I pray to him. Verse 19, but verily, truly, God hath heard me. He hath attended to the voice of my prayer. This is our God, the God who hears prayer, the God who acts in response to our prayers. And so he concludes in verse 20, with praise to God, blessed be God, which hath not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. No, God didn't turn away or reject his prayer. God didn't refuse to show his mercy, his kindness to the author of this psalm. It may have seemed like that when he was suffering so much. It may have seemed like that in his troubles, but he remained true to God. He didn't turn to sin. He still worshipped God. He still made his vows, his promises to God. And the time came when God answered his prayer. And so he blessed, he praised God. He gave honour to our great God, God who he knew as his own rescuer, the one who had rescued him from trouble. In a moment, my email address, but first, in a moment, I'll read you the whole psalm, but my email address, 333kjv at gmail.com. That's 333kjv at gmail.com. So in conclusion then, here's the whole of Psalm 66. To the chief musician, a song or psalm. Make a joyful noise unto God, all ye lands. Sing forth the honour of his name, make his praise glorious. 
Say unto God, How terrible art thou in thy works! Through the greatness of thy power shall thine enemies submit themselves unto thee. All the earth shall worship thee, and shall sing unto thee. They shall sing unto thy name, Selah. Come and see the works of God. He is terrible in his doing toward the children of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They went through the flood on foot. There did we rejoice in him. He ruleth by his power forever. His eyes behold the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Selah. O oh, bless our God, ye people, and make the voice of his praise to be heard, which holdeth our soul in life, and suffereth not our feet to be moved. For thou, O oh God, hast proved us. Thou hast tried us as silver is tried. Thou broughtest us into the net. Thou laidest affliction upon our loins. Thou hast caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, but thou broughtest us out into a wealthy place. I will go into thy house with burnt offerings. I will pay thee my vows which my lips have uttered, and my mouth hath, my mouth hath spoken when I was in trouble. I will offer unto thee burnt sacrifices of fatlings with the incense of rams. I will offer bullocks with goats. Selah. Come and hear, all ye that fear God, and I will declare what he hath done for my soul. I cried unto him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. But verily, God hath heard me. He hath attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, which hath not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me.